0: As we've been looking at in Judges, uh, we know that the Israelites throughout the Judges were repeatedly turning away from God, and that after turning away from Him in favor of the idols of the land of Canaan, God actually gave them over, and they were oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. Well, who are these Midianites? Have any of you ever seen A Bug's Life? Certainly all the millennials in the room have. Uh, If you can remember Hopper, and his grasshopper bandits. These are the Midianites. <laughs> they would show up every year at harvest time in overwhelming numbers. They're compared to locusts. They rode camels, which back in that day was like an incredibly advanced piece of technology. And they would raid the Israelites and steal their livestock and steal their produce, and they'd leave the Israelites hiding in caves and impoverished. Well. You know the story. The oppression leads the Israelites to repent. God raises up Gideon to rescue them. And Gideon gets together his army of 32,000 of his fellow Hebrew men. And God says, you know what, Gideon? I think you're misidentifying the solution to your problem. You've got too many men for me to save you. If you do it this way, Israel's going to boast as if she saved herself. So Gideon sends home 22,000 of his troops and he's left with 10,000. And God says to him, you know, Gideon, that's still too many troops. And Gideon's like, well, God, you know, no disrespect, but the Midian army, Midianite army is over 120,000 people strong. And we just went from four to one odds to 12 to one odds. And God says, great point, Gideon. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send home even more people. So everybody who kneels to the drink at the river, go ahead and send them home. So Gideon does that, and he's left with 300 men. 300 against 120,000. But you see, it's exactly at this point that Gideon starts to understand what God is trying to teach him. Gideon understands that not with all of the men of Canaan would he on his own be able to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. And so he goes and he sneaks over to the Midianite camp at night and he becomes convinced that actually 300 men is more than enough, because God is with him. God had terrified the Midianites. And so he gets his elite band of merry men together and he says, men, tonight we attack the Midianite camp. Arm yourselves. And the men are like, sweet, awesome, are we going to use Swords? Are we going to use spears? Are we going to use arrows? Flaming arrows? And he says, arm yourselves with trumpets. Somewhere in the back, there's a former drum major who's like, yes! <laughs> All those years of lessons, finally paying off. And Gideon says, today, the Lord has given The Midianites into your hand, which I don't know about you, but that's a really bold thing to say before you've ever even attacked their camp. But Gideon wasn't confident in himself. He knew that there was no enemy who could stand up before God. And so he tells his men, men, let's get into two positions outside the camp. And on my mark, I want you to break your jars and blow your horns. And so Jazz was born. (laughs) No, And so right after the change of the night guard, uh, as one group is walking back to go to sleep, they do this and they blow their horns and it, it throws the camp into confusion because the people who are just waking up see this group walking back and they think it's the enemy. And then the people who are on the guard think that the Israelites are there in overwhelming numbers, that they've already broken into the camp. And a great battle breaks out between the Midianites and the Midianites. (laughs) They began attacking themselves because in their fear and in their surprise, they misidentified their enemy, the Israelites. Because Gideon trusted in God's strength and not his own, he was able to rout an entire army with a 300-piece marching band. (laughs) And he rescued Israel. (laughs) And this is why you should teach music in schools. (laughs) Just kidding about that. Oh, well, I, I do think that. but um, There's more to the story, obviously, and I'm just going to put a shameless plug in for our Judges Bible study. Uh, we're in Jephthah currently. Well, Paul, as he prepares to close out his letter to the church at Ephesus, wants to give a final exhortation to the congregation. Uh, most of these Christians were saved out of a life of paganism and a decadent culture full of idol worship and moral depravity, not unlike the USA in 2022. And Paul, as he contemplates the rest of their Christian lives and what they need to know, he compares the Christian life to a battle. And I wonder to myself if he was even thinking of stories like Gideon and King David as he wrote chapter 6, verse 10. So please pick up with me as we read our text this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning because you are an awesome God. We're gathering this morning to praise you because you deserve it and because we want to. We know that we find our highest fulfillment in praising the God who not only created us, but who sustains us, who redeems us, who redeemed our life from the pit. God, you are so great. Jesus Christ, we are forever thankful for the sacrifice you made on the cross for us. We are humbled by your grace, and we confess that we are your servants. God, I pray this morning that as we open your word, you would give us ready and willing hearts to receive your word. And that we would submit to your word and that we would love you more because of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you recall, the first half of Ephesians was detailing the gospel calling of the church. So how did God go about calling a people to himself? The extraordinary links that he took. Not only to save us from our sins, but to reconcile us to him and to one another, to make us his beloved children. Well, as we got into the second half of Ephesians, it became immensely more uh, practical. How is it that a Christian is to respond to the grace of God? And so we saw, so far, that we are to do a lot of walking, right? We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that's in unity. Uh, We we are to walk in, In holiness, we're to walk as children of light, we walk in love, we walk in wisdom. And today, Paul changes the metaphor, or develops it rather, from walking into standing, standing in God's strength. And so that's what we see here in verse 10. Paul writes, be strong. God desires strong Christians. He desires for you to recognize that in following Christ, you do not live in spiritual Switzerland. Neutrality is not an option. In declaring your allegiance to the creator of the universe, God's enemies have now become your enemies. And so you need to be strong. Well, why? Because it says be strong. But it is a particular kind of strength that God desires in each of us. And it's not the kind of strength that you can develop from lifting weights or going to water aerobics classes or however you like to work out. This is a spiritual strength. And all, as Paul points out, it is the strength of his might. So consider with me for a moment Gideon's confidence as he went and attacked the Midianites. All right? He wasn't Confident in his own strength. Even if he had kept the 32,000 and went and attacked the camp on his own, he's still facing four to one odds. He would have been walloped. Before the battle, Gideon's confidence looked like insanity. It's only in hindsight that we see that he was operating by faith and that with God on his side, not only was he not outnumbered, but he had the overwhelming advantage the strength of God's might. So please, Christians, ignore all the self-help gurus who want to tell you, you are strong, you are mighty, uh, you are conqueror, you do you. Because in the light of God's strength and in light of the strength of your adversaries, your strength just isn't all that impressive. Remember, it was entirely God's strength and entirely God's initiative which made you a Christian in the first place. Remember where we were in chapter 2. Paul wrote, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, dead people don't walk. Dead people don't stand. Dead people are not strong. But God used the same power with which he raised Jesus Christ up from the grave to make you alive spiritually. And on the cross, Jesus paid the insurmountable debt of sin which you owed God, and he did it for you. And this was all done by God's strength and not your strength. And so as Paul begins the letter, he's reminding us that not only does the Christian life begin by God's strength alone, but the Christian life is sustained by God's strength alone. Perhaps you remember in chapter 3 when we went through there in verse 16. He says this, he says that according, Paul's praying, he says that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to what? To be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being. Well what Paul prayed for you in chapter 3 he now expects of you in chapter 6 that you would be strong but that your strength would come from outside of yourself from the Holy Spirit. Well, we've now probed probed the call, I can't read, probed the call to employing divine strength. In verses 11 to 13, we'll see why that strength is necessary. So pick up with me in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, in Paul's choice of metaphor here, I think it's important we note that he didn't tell us to put on the swimsuit of God. And he didn't tell us to put on the dancing shoes of God. What does he say? He says, put on the whole armor of God. And it would seem that according to this, Paul is suggesting that the Christian life, while wonderful, is not a walk in the park. And commanding us to put on spiritual armor, he makes it clear that we can expect the Christian life in some sense to be a battle. And so the armor helps the person wearing the armor in verse 11 to do what? To stand against, to stand firm, to resist. Uh, This is an active posture. This is a battle posture. There's nothing passive about that verb there. Uh, The armor of God is helping you to stand against what? The schemes. Oh, yeah. It's a rhetorical question, Dan. I'm just just kidding. (laughs) Actually, I do like it when people interact a little bit. I'm sorry, Dan. To stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Or you could translate that, the craftiness of the devil. This is where it gets a little weird for us 21st century Christians. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures unambiguously teach that there is a spiritual reality underpinning our physical one. And while the devil is often caricatured in popular culture, he is very much real and very effective. Many in our day would recognize that God is spiritual. Many in our day would call themselves spiritual. But for some reason, we immediately dismiss the possibility of evil spiritual forces or of demons. Well, that's for SNL's church lady, but that's not for me. But if the idea of a personal spiritual God is plausible to you, which I assume since you're currently in a church, then the idea of evil spiritual forces should be as well. Given how little we truly understand about the universe, it is a naive person who accepts only what can be observed with our five senses, who accepts only a naturalistic worldview and rejects the supernatural. Certainly Satan is happy for us to pretend that he doesn't exist. That's why it says the schemes or the craftiness of the devil, he's smarter than we are. As you know, the line from A Mighty Fortress is, Our God on earth is not his equal. And so, Christians, we recognize that our life is in some sense a battle. And in this battle, we would be wise to recognize our true enemy. The Midianites failed to recognize their enemy to their own disaster. Paul says this, that we do not struggle against flesh and blood. Your enemies ultimately are not human. Pastor, it sure feels like it sometimes. No, our enemy is spiritual. Look at verse 12 with me one more time. Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're not going to get into it today, but these are all descriptors of demonic activity in our world. And we could break that down if we wanted. Um, But what Paul is saying here is that while you may face human enemies who oppose you because you represent Christ Jesus, that in reality there is an enemy behind your enemies. Do you remember the description of the unregenerate person in chapter 2? The sons of disobedience, that they are spiritually dead? slavishly following the course of the world, slavishly following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work, and the sons of disobedience. And that's just a fancy term for the devil. What the scriptures are saying here and in other places is this, that to worship anything other than Jesus Christ is to be enslaved to our sin and ultimately to be enslaved to demonic forces. If we fast forward to chapter 4, verse 18, we see the same description once more. He says, They, those who don't yet know Christ, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But it's not just Paul here. Consider the words of Jesus and John Eight, ...as he spoke to the Jewish leaders of his day. I'll start in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then verse 44. You are of your father, the devil... And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus doesn't mince words there. So yes, I believe the word of God is teaching us the state of humanity in sin, that it is horribly enslaved to sin and to demonic forces. Is that really, pastor? Demons? I know of no greater illustration to the truth of this claim than to point out how it is that we as human beings treat one another. Every single culture on earth recognizes the evil of murder. Yet yeah, we saw in the last century, the 20th century, hundreds of millions dead. ...for no other reason than the enslavement of the human heart to wickedness. Six million Jews died in the Holocaust. And Germany was rightly condemned for her role in that wickedness. But do you realize, since Roe v. Wade passed in this country... ...we have killed ten times that many of our own children? 63 million baby images of God all in the name of equality, or of choice, whatever euphemism you want to throw in there. You see, the disparity between our proposed morality, even outside the Christian faith, where everybody agrees that murder is wrong, and then the actual practices of our actions as human beings would certainly seem to lend evidence to the idea that there's something wrong with us, and that we're serving someone other than God. So, Let's draw out three applications. And by the way, there is nothing that God cannot forgive. Number one, this means that you can have compassion on your human enemies. That when people oppose you for speaking up for the oppressed, when they oppose you for boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can have compassion on them. You can show kindness. You can forgive them and show them grace because you recognize that they are acting in ignorance. Ignorance with minds that are enslaved to darkness, and that apart from God's sovereign grace in your own life, you would be in the same place. Secondly, uh, when we recognize that our enemies are spiritual, then we learn to depend on God, as Colossians 2, verse 14 shows us, because Christ has already put your enemies into subjection says this, by canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed who? The people from our passage, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so Christ has put our enemies under his feet, and yet they squirm and they wreak havoc until judgment day when he gets rid of them, finally. Thirdly, uh, when you recognize that your enemies are actually spiritual, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. What do I mean by that? I mean you take these next verses seriously. You put on the armor of God so that you are able to stand, verse 13, in the evil day. You see, to fight a spiritual battle you're going to need spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. So let's keep reading in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, Paul here, as he's extending the battle metaphor, is now describing spiritual armor in the same way that you describe the armor of a Roman soldier. Uh, Unfortunately, our plastic armor of God is no longer at the church, so I couldn't dress up for you to illustrate all of this this morning. Uh, My apologies. So, what are we to do? We're to fasten the belt of truth. Uh, You don't have to listen much these days to hear people talk about, well, I'm just living out my truth, and you can live out your truth, and the truth is relative, the truth varies from person to person. And while Christians, we can recognize that people have different perspectives on the truth we deny that the truth is relative. The truth doesn't change from person to person. And so Christian, I want you to have confidence that God cares deeply about the truth. And Christian, part of your battle is to always stand in the truth and it's to never compromise the truth for the sake of avoiding adversity. You see, there's a lot of forces in this world that want to reward you for staring at a naked emperor with everybody else and declaring that his clothes are magnificent. But you've got to be the person who looks at him and says the emperor is not wearing clothes, even though it could cost you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote from the Soviet gulag in the mid-20th century that... One person who stops lying can bring down a tyranny. Brothers and sisters, the one truth we hold above all else is the truth of God's word. Next up, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is defensive armor. Now, this, this righteousness he's talking about can be understood in two ways. First, it is the righteousness that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. That's justification. Uh, That in Christ alone, we can be made righteous in the sight of God. That no matter what we've done in our enslavement to sin, and we've all done, we're all sinners. That no matter what we've done, Christ's righteousness is greater. His mercy is more. And he can forgive anything. And this is our defense And our times of darkness and our times of doubt is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But secondly, this also refers to a moral uprightness. It's a practical righteousness so that your lifestyle lends credibility to the Christian message which you proclaim. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 5.16. What does he say there? He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Nothing undercuts the Christian message like hypocrisy, proclaiming the truth of Christ and yet living as if it's not true. So, rest in the gift of his righteousness and live in accordance with that righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, on the next one, I think the NIV gets it best there. It says, having your feet fitted with the righteousness, that, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Uh, Paul's saying that the gospel prepares us for the battle. It's like tying your shoes. Uh, consider Isaiah 52, because Isaiah 52 shows us why it is that Paul is talking about good news and why it is that Paul is talking about feet says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the good news of Jesus Christ that all the ends of the earth will come to know God and to love God and to have peace with God for eternity. This is good news for all who have ears to hear. And this morning, if you're wondering if you could ever know God, if God could ever forgive you, listen, Christ died to reconcile sinners like me and like you to God. And if you place your faith in him and repent from your sins, he will make you a child of God and give you peace for eternity with God. And so this gospel of peace is good news for all and it makes us ready for the battle. Next up, the shield of faith. And when we come to the shield, we would do well to ask why it is that somebody needs a shield. And the answer is right there for us in verse 16. The shield is for extinguishing the flaming arrows or darts of the evil one. There's a great passage in Pilgrim's Progress about this, but I don't have time to go into it. I'll just... Recommend that you go and read it when Christian battles Apollyon. So let's ask what is it that Satan's after? Why is he throwing darts or arrows or projectiles or whatever your translation says? Well, we know that Satan seeks to work against the work of God. Satan seeks to prevent men and women from coming to know Christ and saving their souls. Satan seeks to steal God's glory by discrediting God's followers. He hopes to cause you to stumble or even fall away from the faith. That through whatever means possible, he may prevent the advance of the gospel and the advance of God's kingdom. Because he knows his time is short. He knows that one day he's going to be judged. And he wants to take as many souls into judgment with him as he can. So his arrows, they look like opportunities and temptations to sin to dishonor God. He lies, as he always has, and seeks to have you lose faith. Or like in the garden, to have you question the goodness of God. He's happy to have you believe in Jesus, so long as it isn't the Jesus of the Scriptures. And it's in these moments of temptation where we are reminded once more to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. To stand... In this moment, we can protect ourselves with the shield of faith. When we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, you can remember His promises to you. When you're tempted to give in to sin, you can remember that your Heavenly Father knows what is best for you, and He knows what will make you happiest. Faith holds on to God's promises even when you don't understand His ways. Faith looks like trusting in God and His Word even when Satan's lies are persuasive. And we know from James... That if we will but resist him, he will flee from us. When you trust God, despite the temptation, you overcome the evil one. So Christian, you can expect the devil's attacks in life, but with the shield of faith, you can extinguish them. Well, the helmet of salvation is there to remind us that God is able to save. That he's the sovereign Lord over all things. That chapter 1 of Ephesians, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. But even more than this, unlike ordinary soldiers who go into battle without knowing the outcome, you, Christian, go into battle knowing that the outcome is secure. You serve a God who controls all things. Christ will defeat his enemies. Satan will lose, and God is working all things toward his glorious conclusion. Well, finally, we turn to the offensive part of the armor, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is in verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Christian, you are not helpless. In your battle. You have been given a weapon. But unlike some religions which advance at the point of a sword or at gunpoint, in Christianity our swords are metaphorical swords. Uh, Our offensive weaponry is the word of God accompanied by the spirit of God. Uh, No one becomes a Christian through coercion, but through persuasion. We Christians have been given the gospel message of salvation through Christ alone and we ought to use it. Remember what he said in chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Occasionally I'll get into a conversation with someone uh, from outside the faith, and they'll say, well, why do you believe Christianity? And I think the simplest and most direct way to answer that question is because it's true. So Christians, we hear the word of truth and we believe it because it's true. And I want to encourage you, Christian, that you have the words of truth right here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul Uh, calls this the power of God unto salvation. We proclaim the word and we pray that the spirit of God will accompany the word of God and so our sword is effective. So Christian, know that you will be engaged in warfare. But the wise Christian knows that every piece of armor you need has already been given to you in Jesus Christ through his spirit. And the incredible thing about the Christians' weapons is that they don't cause harm, but they bring reconciliation to God the Father. The sword of the Spirit can be thought of as a scalpel, which roots out sin and brings us healing and reconciliation with God. So, as we use the armor of God, it should be apparent that we wield it prayerfully. What is the most obvious way in your life that you can show that you are dependent upon God and not your own strength. That's exactly what Paul's getting at in verses 18 to 20. Let's look at it one last time. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so he writes, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You say, really? Like all times? Am I to be constantly like praying to God in my head? I think that'd be pretty cool if you could pull that off. <laughs> but I think the idea here is that you are recognizing always your dependence on God and that prayer to you is as natural as breathing as you go through your day and face the different opportunities and complexities of life you're dependent upon God in prayer Uh, maybe you remember when we were going through Nehemiah and Nehemiah is saddened because he hears how Jerusalem has been devastated and he's praying for an opportunity to go to the king of Persia and one day the king of Persia notices he said he says Nehemiah you know why the long face what does Nehemiah do? Well, he's already been praying about it. But it says before he responds, he prays. And I don't think he was bowing down and saying, hold on a second, king, you know. But no, he's got that relationship. He's, He's always dependent upon God in prayer. So he prays and he immediately answers the king and God grants his request. You see, the smallest and most insignificant person can be a mighty warrior for God if that person is deep in faith and rooted in prayer. And the person with all of the world's accolades can die without making any sort of impact in this world, all because she was relying on self. And so with regard to the Christian walk and the battle of life, Christian, I want you to be spiritual Yodas. Little green men who can wield the force. No, I'm I'm getting at the idea. He says, size matters not. Human strength matters not. I want you to recognize that you are physically weak before God, to recognize your own spiritual weakness, and instead to depend on God through prayer. Because it's in our prayer lives, uh, because our prayer lives reveal what it is that we're trusting in. A life of prayerlessness is a life which is devoid of the Spirit's power. This is the person who is content in their own strength. And so despite human appearances, they are actually weak. But the one who prays in desperation is the one who trusts in God's strength and not their own. And so the text continues, our prayer should be alert. We should pray actively. We should persevere in prayer. That means that you're willing to trust God repeatedly even if he doesn't immediately answer your prayer. And our supplication, he says, should be on behalf of all the saints. That's why we stay alert, so we can raise our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world up in prayer, as as Ben did today in our common prayer. And Paul here gives us an example of what it looks like to seek God's strength as he seeks it in his own life. If you recall way back in our intro sermon to Ephesians, we talked about this. What do the arrows of the devil look like for the apostle Paul in the first century? Well, in this case, it looked like being sent to languish in a Roman prison for Christ. And so here, Paul, as he's sitting in a prison writing this letter, his temptation is to just shut up about this whole gospel business and let it blow over. And the devil whispers in his ear, Paul, is preaching Christ worth going to prison Paul, why would a good God let you suffer after all that you have done for him? Surely he cannot be good. Paul, you should just leave this whole gospel business behind and live your best life now. Paul, you're in chains. You don't even have to stop preaching Christ. Just just don't say he's the only way to God. And then everybody will love you. But Paul, armed with the shield of faith, dispels the lies of the devil. And he knows that if he's going to persevere in faith, that it will require the prayers of these young Ephesian Christians. And he says to them, he writes, pray for me, that God would grant me the words to say. This is an apostle. That God would give me boldness in proclaiming the word of truth, the sword of the Spirit that I would put on that belt of truth, that I'd resist the lies of the evil one and speak freely as I should so that I can fight the good fight, so I can finish the race. And I look forward one day to trading in my breastplate of righteousness for a crown, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to all those who love him. But dear Ephesians, he writes, pray for me because I do not have the strength to do it on my own. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you believe that you need the strength of God? Are you praying for your brothers and sisters? For your kids? A little self-serving. But are you praying for your pastor? What it could look like if we were a church zealous for the glory of God and to see him work powerfully among us. How we would go before him in prayer with humility and confidence. So let's take the example of the Apostle Paul here for us. Let's be weak in human terms, but strong in faith and dependent in prayer. Let's stand boldly against the lies of Satan, but also spread the liberating message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we always be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Let's pray.